you're listening to another episode of A Lady and Some Dudes Podcast. Hey, good day. (laughs) Stop laughing, let's start. Welcome to another episode of A Lady and Some Dude. At this time, we're going to share a grateful moment. Hi, I'm Philip, and my grateful moment is allowing me to see another week, spending time with my family, my, my three girls, and my wife. It's been awesome. Coach Howard, what's your grateful moment? Uh, my, my grateful moment um, has, has been really just the opportunity to turn this quarantine um, and, and, and what seems like a, like a tragedy in, in a lot of regards as a blessing. Uh, because, you know, I got a chance to spend, you know, three months in, in the house with my family, with my, with my young kids, with my wife. Uh, I don't ordinarily, you know, get that type of time in my profession. So, so for me, the, these last three months has been a, a grateful moment um, just to, you know, have the opportunity to just be at home and, and, and spend this quality time with my family. Thank you. Kelvin? Yeah, my um, grateful moment this week. Uh, kind of piggy up, keep piggyback off Ash. Um, it was good to see my family uh, and my church family as well uh, be, being able to participate in, in peaceful protests. Um, so, you know, when I watched uh, some videos sent, I was really happy. Uh, some of my nieces and nephews were even a part of some marches down in Jersey. Uh, my church uh, uh, was part of a march in Chester about violence and police brutality. So it was good to see people. Uh, impact the community community with their voices. Hey, what's up, y'all? My grateful moment is that, well, for one, I've gained a new year of life. I'm now uh, 32 years old. So thanks for having a birthday this past week. Uh, Also, uh, I'm grateful that, uh, as Kel alluded to, uh, I was able to just spend time with my family. My brother was in town. I got to see my, my, my niece. Uh, who for the first time, she's six months old, precious, and had a good time with that. Uh, and I'm excited um, that on this coming Friday, Juneteenth, uh, I'm doing two things. One, uh, in the city of Charlotte, we're participating in uh, a freedom march down at First Ward Park. Uh, and it's gonna be a collaboration with various churches in the area and a group called Long Live the Youth, members made up of members from my church which I pastor and end it now in Charlotte, which is another community organization that I'm a part of. Uh, and then on the 19th uh, as well, that evening, so from one to three, from one to three, I'll be at the peaceful protests. And then at 7 p.m., uh, we're having our Jubilant June uh, revival series or more so Vespers uh, series Friday uh, evening. And we have uh, Dr. Jamie Calazar joining us and so we're excited to have a dynamic speaker from Dallas to join us as we continue to minister to the hurting in Charlotte in the midst of this, uh, these tumultuous times. Hey, everyone. Um, my grateful moment is this week I actually started teaching um, my criminology class for, the H- for an HBCU. And I am so excited about that, not only to be teaching and to be able to teach young people about 
the law and all aspects of the law, but I feel like in this climate, to be able to give back to students that look like myself um, and my community, and to be able to teach the young leaders of tomorrow, for me, that's like the greatest honor that, um, that I can do in this climate. I feel like education is so essential. And so I am so grateful for that opportunity. I'm grateful for my students. Um, and I'm grateful for the university allowing me to have an unapologetic voice as I teach these students. And it's the NBA. And the question is, do you think the NBA should come back during this time? And Coach Ash kind of jumped on that. Yeah, what are you thinking about the NBA right now? Um, I actually share some of the same sentiments um, mentioned by Coach Ash and the fact that, first of all, I'm a sports fan first. So the very selfish part of me <laughs> just wants to see basketball in action. Like I, I felt like we've been deprived for two, three months. I don't even know how long it's been. What day is today? Who knows? But I feel like we have been deprived of basketball. And even in this current climate with protests, I think it is so essential um, that it comes back for the reasons stated. When you have players who we know will be very vocal and the reality of it is the black athlete in the NBA, that platform is one of the biggest platforms um, that can be used to promote, um, you know, social justice initiatives, um, to get conversations going and to get um, plans in action. And so even though I feel like we are in a very delicate time in our history and the issues behind the protests is absolutely essential and should not be in the back burner. Um, I think bringing basketball back can actually further um, the goals of the protests, um, you know, being able to bring it on that platform. Evans, what are you thinking? Hey, yeah, man. I think that um, it's something that we could I don't think that not having basketball removes from the protests, right? And I don't think basketball is an erasure of what's going on. Because when, when Eric Garner died, it was big news and kept uh, news on the press when LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, Chris Paul wore the shirt. Right? That, that we all were aware of what was, what was going on. And so even as relates to in other sports, athletes have a platform. When we see them, it's not necessarily when they're out in the streets. When we see them, it's when they are on the biggest stage that our society has given them the platform to have. So I think athletics allows us not to block it out, but if they so choose allows it to keep on the forefront of our minds. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm torn. I, I would say I'm torn with this issue too. I think it's, um, I think the people that I heard speak about, speak out about it was Steven Jackson, um, 
a person being outside the NBA, but then the, the NBA players, like you said, Carmelo Anthony, I heard spoke out about it as well as Kyrie Irving. So um, to me, uh, I'd be interested to know um, if there's anybody that actually has a chance of winning the finals that's speaking out about it. <laughs> because if I hear Carmelo and I hear Kyrie, um, they don't have a shot of winning the finals. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of different here. It come from him. I'm curious to somebody like LeBron or, or uh, Giannis, you know, their views about it. But, like, you know, everybody made good points here. Um, as far as uh, you want to talk about safety and you want to talk about uh, minimizing the voice right now, I think it's the business of the NBA um, to make sure that the voice is not minimized. So just as much as it is as a priority for the players, if the NBA continues um, to play, I think it's up to the league and up to the players holding the, the league accountable to make sure that the voice is not stymied by, um, you know, the NBA season getting to continue. Coach, you want to add on to that? You know, so, you know, I, I gave a little bit of my per perspective earlier. You know, the, the one thing that, that I, I'm still uh, leery of is just COVID-19, right? And, you know, you can get going, and then what if one player gets COVID-19, and now you have all the teams in one location. Now you have to figure out what you're doing with everybody. So, you know, I would just hate for it to be a deal where they start, and then somebody comes up with COVID-19, then it's an abrupt ending. Um, you know, I, as a coach, I'm just always of the mindset of just like, you know, just, you know, uh, you know, well-being of the players, well-being of of everybody involved. So, um, you know, that's you know that's that's my that's my two cents. But I would definitely love to see basketball being played. Right, <laughs> with, right. With that being said, uh, you know, I, I, I probably watched the Last Dance like five times already. Each episode, so I'm 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 all Last Danced out right now. Right. <laughs> I think we all. Um, I think one thing one one thing I, I think I would add to that um, to what I already said is that it's just interesting to me because some of these same players are out there protesting. So I don't know if they're really I, I don't know like why are you concerned about Disney World and things of that nature if you're already out there in these streets. I mean I saw Kyle Lowry with this with uh, Tobias Harris and Matisse Seibel. Uh, out in the Elden Brand, out in these streets. So I'm not buying that they're concerned about, about their well-being because I'm pretty sure they're still going out. They're still doing things. I see people in the NFL who are still coming together to practice. So uh, I agree a little bit with Kevin saying some people were just talking like, Carmelo, get out of here with this. But I don't see like people just staying home. Uh, it's more dangerous, if we're being honest. It's more dangerous to get caught COVID-19, either get shot by the cops or catch COVID-19 out in these streets than it is going to Disney World to play basketball. <laughs> um, it's just wanted to add, we had an interview last, last week with um, John Salmons, and he kind of brought a point out. That I think the NBA stopped at 62 games, so the eight games will allow them to fill that contract money. So kind of eerie at that point, but we're going to transition. I've been ready for three years. I've been denied for three years. We all know why I came out here, showed it today in front of everybody. 
captain it. And my question to the, to the team is, if you were captain it, will you return to the NFL if they offer you a contract? So the first person will ask, E? Uh, yeah, man. Um, here, here's my answer. Um, if he so chooses, yes. Uh, if it's what he wants, like if he wants to come back as a starter, which I think may be unrealistic at this standpoint, based on him being out of the league for a while, um, I, I, I don't see it as selling out or not that we need to do. Because at, at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, you, he protest, he's protesting for something. He's protesting to bring awareness. And so I think we have to do our job whenever anyone gets involved in the protest to keep the main thing the main thing. I remember Eric Reed got mad at Malcolm Jenkins for no longer kneeling because Eric Reed made it about Cap having a job and not about the issue. And so Malcolm Jenkins felt like he got a fair concession from the league, which is developing social justice department in which he could work and funding behind it. So um, I just think Kaepernick right now, uh, it's up to him if he so chooses. Um, because guess what, guys? At the end of the day, the money's still green. So I don't see it as a sellout or betraying the movement because, as, as I said before, the greatest platform we have, I think, is the platform that they have been afforded, which is being a professional athlete. Hey, Coach Ash, what do you think about that? Honestly, I think it it's it's all about um, his like his ability to feel like he can go out there and do his job. You know what I mean? Because it's it's been some time it's been some time since he's been out there now, and you know I I wouldn't want him to. I think he has more uh, power right now as being the individual that sacrificed his playing career for what he felt was right. And I think like right now, if he didn't, and he just, you know, just moved forward with, you know, you know, you know, fighting, um, you know, the, the fight on, you know, injustice in our country, I think will have more of an impact. Right. And, and like now it's this for him to return now is like really just after the fact, right? Like he like he's not he wasn't it wasn't like he was the 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 best quarterback in the NFL. So like Muhammad Ali was able to sacrifice some really significant years of his prime, right? And then come back and still be at the peak of his of his game. I don't know if Colin Kaepernick has that ability, right? So I think he has to just be careful of um, not tarnishing the impact that he could have, you know, um, either either way, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I, and um, it's it's funny because I I kind of I'm torn on this situation as well because um, I do feel like he can tarnish his legacy uh, by coming back. Um, I think Cap now is the martyr. He was the martyr. Um, that instigated this situation now, and now he's on gold level because the stance that he took. So I think if he comes back, it might play among the narrative 
I mean, it's it's the whole risk risk reward equation now. Um, if he comes back and he plays well, his voice projects even more. So that's the high risk right there. Um, then a low ceiling is if he comes back and he plays terrible. Now uh, the narrative that was pushed was correct. It wasn't about the protest. What they say was uh, he wasn't blackballed because of the protest. What, what was said was his skills diminish, which is totally untrue in my opinion anyway. But I, I do think um, with him, he has to, he has to figure out, um, is he ready to play? Um, where is he at? Um, but I would want him to play, and I want him to play at a high level. But I'm worried because it's a performance-based organization at the end of the day. So if he's not performing at peak performance, then – I think he lose he loses some of the vo the voice and the momentum of the movement, so that's why I'm I will be torn on that. I think, all right. So I'll start it off by saying I think it depends on what Cap wants to do, um, whether or not, as was mentioned before, he wants to come back, whether or not he feels that he can perform at a high level. Um, but without perspective or input from CAP, I think the better question is, or the answer to the question is, it depends on what kind of contract. Are we talking about CAP coming back as a player? Or are we talking about CAP coming back as like head of diversity and inclusion? And the reason why I say that is I agree. I don't know with the time that has passed. I am not super confident that Cap can reintegrate into the league um, and be at the top of his game. Like, let's just keep it real. Um, I do think, though, the NFL needs his voice. I feel like they need his perspective. Um, I would love to see him in NFL boardrooms. I would love to see him in a place where he can sit across and Goodell can look at that afro every time they meet. Um, I want him in a position where his voice is not just like this social media um, gathering and support. I want him in a place where he has power and where he can effectuate change internally because that's what the NFL needs. And the reality of it now, hiring Cat today, years after, you know, um, I guess now George Floyd had to be the sacrifice for Goodell to see what the point of the protest was. It's like, no, I, I don't want him to be an afterthought, right? I want him to be the player that's making decisions. I want him to infiltrate that organization and influence internally because for me that's more powerful i agree with you um and my sentiments is he has to make that decision um to return if he wants to and i'm for for him to return as we transition to the next question and my question is then nas nascar has decided to ban confederate flag i live here in charlotte so when I do pass the um, Charlotte Raceway, which is ironically located in Concord, but that's a different, whole different issue. 
I generally see all these flags, Confederate flags all over the place. I'm happy um, that they are taking the stance to ban the flag, but one guy named Ray, and this is probably the most publicity he will ever get because he never won a, a meet on the NASCAR level, and he's on a small team. But he took to Twitter, Facebook, and his social media stating, because they are banning the flag, he's not returning. What's your thoughts on this, Dion? Okay, so the Confederate flag for me is a representation of oppression. It is a representation of white supremacy. Um, it is a representation of every value that is repugnant to society. And so my position will forever and always be, as our listeners can guess by now, get that flag out of here. I mean, that that's not even a thought process for me. Um, this driver, Ray... C is what I'll call him, who is like, oh, if they remove the flags, you know, I'm going to quit NASCAR. Well, thank you, because for your years that you have just won participation awards, he has no real impact on the sport. He has not been significant in any major way. Um, this in no way impacts anyone or, or anyone that even follows the sport. He is a non-factor. And it actually really made me laugh when he took to Twitter because I was like, who is this guy? Like, where, who sent him? So um, his perspective is completely irrelevant to me. I think when you get down to the core and, and what this flag means and what this flag represents and the people that tote this flag, um, with hatred, um, I think it has no place in an American sport. I don't think we should be displaying it anywhere. Um, I think it is time. It was time a long time ago, but I'm glad that that is the way that it, it's happening now. All right, Coach Ash, what are you thinking? I, I think, I think, uh, Dion hit the the nail on the on the coffin right there. Um, I just think the Confederate flag um, represents um, just an outdated that if we're talking about um, moving forward and, and instituting change, I think it starts there. Um, just because of everything, you know, the flag you know represents here in, in our country. So, Cal, what's on your mind on this subject? I'm so happy it happened. Um, one thing that I that I found out from doing a, a tiny bit of research is this is something they tried to ban as far as um, a flag that was promoted in the sport uh, back in 2015. Um, so of course now, because of the things that's going on in our country and the climate, they officially allowed, officially banned it from a driver being able to use it or the sport being something that the sport promotes. So I think it's long overdue. Um, and I think they're on the right side of history now. It's just interesting to me, and it shows the climate of the country, the fact that we even having the discussion for a sport to endorse it. 
or just finally not endorsing it. Um, so it, it just speaks to where we at right now as a society. Um, and I think as far as Ray's concerned, um, I can't even say his last name. Uh, it's hard to pronounce, but I, I think he's a relevant voice, but it's a necessary voice at the same time because it shows us where we at and how a lot of people, he's just had the confidence, he had the confidence to express his opinion. Um, for Not for one second do I think other drivers uh, don't share his viewpoint. This is like a sacred sport um, from the South, a white man's sport. Um, so, you know, you, you touching something sacred to them. So, but I think um, that's where you look at the protests and you say, okay, protesting doesn't make sense. This is where you see where the protest makes sense and the voice is really heard because it's making change that's going to be impactful. And now because of it, you know, somebody like myself might even watch NASCAR. I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm not, I'm a NASCAR guy. I'm not. Um, but now I might spend 10, 20 minutes watching these cars go around 200 miles per hour. And these boys about to kill themselves. I, I might, I might view it now just because they, they made a stance on the right side of history. So uh, uh, kudos props to NASCAR for making this decision, but it's long overdue. And, um, but at the same time, it just shows that the voice of a protest is necessary. So I, I'm, I'm going to make a little bit of a long, not saying I lost I'm going to say a few things. And one of the things I'm going to say, I'm, I'm give you all cause to pause, but just listen to me all the way through. What I'll say is this, that this shouldn't even be news. The fact that it's news is really a problem in this day and age. Today I was looking at something that happened in Philadelphia and you have pretty much what looked like a, a white mob with bats and guns defending a Christopher Columbus um, statue. I don't know if anyone's coming to take it down or, or what, but the fact that they are working so hard to defend someone who has a history that is documented of, of mistreating indigenous populations and participating in the transatlantic slave trade, and they're defending it. It kind of just showed me that this stuff we're right here, these relics of the old South that are hanging up is idolatry. I'm not kidding. It is idolatry. It is idolatry of a past that should have been forsaken an idolatry of whiteness. That's number one. And it's not just interspersed within NASCAR. Let's think about this. And, and hear me out, guys. Hear me out. This is gonna, what I'm going to say is about to be offensive to some people. I don't mean in an offensive way. I can't for the life of me understand why we have Jerry West as the NBA logo. And here's why I say this. Jerry West is a white guy, great. He only won one championship. During the same era, you had Bill Russell, who won 10 championships. Why is it that Jerry West is the logo for the NBA, but then Bill Russell, the, the, the epitome of greatness, the epitome of championship, the epitome of winning, isn't on the logo? I, I, I don't get it. And so to me, it, it just reeks of the marriage of the American mind to the celebration of what white men have done in our society and the neglect and the, the lack of caring for the disrespect that that flag represents and what these statues that they're defending represent during this critical time. 
I think but, it's interesting. I just wanted to give a, a, my experience with that. So prior to being a prosecutor, I was an assistant public defender for about five years. And um, one of the clients that I represented, I used to work in Pitt County, which is in Greenville, North Carolina, on the eastern part of the state. And very rural, very interesting perspectives and very racist. And I remember having a client, um, you know, charged with multiple things. He came to the office. I ran outside to my car before the appointment and saw that he, this individual, I didn't know he was my client at the time, but he had the Confederate flag on his vehicle. I go back inside and I say to myself, what are the odds that this is going to be a client of mine? At the time I was the only black attorney in the office and he comes in and they call me downstairs, your two o'clock appointment is here. And I come down <laughs> and I walk towards him. He looks at me, I look at him, he looks at me, I look at him. I mean, it was just one of the most awkward meetings. And I remember sitting and talking to him about the case. There was a lot of tension in that meeting because clearly he has these ideals that is attached to his outward representation of having this flag on his car. And here I am, a Black woman, talking to him about the case. And I remember at the end of the conversation, he was like, um, you are probably one of the most intelligent people I have spoken to. Um, he said, I have interacted with attorneys in the past, but I haven't felt as comfortable um, with other attorneys in the past. And he was honest. He was like, my perspective or my viewpoint of who I thought people that look like you are has completely now shifted. And so when we talk about what a flag represents, there is a culture that comes behind that. There are preconceived, inaccurate notions of who we are. Um, and when I say who we are, who we as Black people are, and, and there's a culture that is attached to that flag that is degrading. And that is why I agree that it's 2020. This should have been done a long time ago. Um, but I stand firmly on, I am glad that it has been done. And, and I hope, as Kelvin mentioned, this is showing people that protesting or speaking out or standing for this cause is so important because I read Facebook posts that say, you know, what's the point of protesting? And they're not coming from us. They're coming from other people. It's like, what is that going to do? Well, you're seeing what it can do with NASCAR. You are seeing laws across the nation being changed um, because of these protests. 
and and so that's i'll i'll just end off from there um where people say it's just a flag it's not just a flag it's deeply rooted ideas um about a subset of people that is attached to that flag so i i gotta throw this in for everybody because um just thinking about it there's like an elephant in the room with, it, with all this too for me um I feel like we shouldn't take everything away. You know what I'm saying? Um, if I can try to explain it and make it make sense. Um, when we talk about the logo, we talk about uh, the Confederate flag, I'm agree if you take that away. But we complain about a lot of things, uh, having like, you know, too many white coaches, uh, too many white GMs, too many white owners, this, that, and the third. And I worry, I'm, I worry that we try to be too greedy and we'll turn away a lot of the fans from uh, sympathizing and we'll just try to, you know, because we want to own everything. I'm just, I'm just, I'm really interested in everybody's perspective from, you know, having a seat at the table versus taking the table over. You know, sports is already dominated. You talk about the NFL, you talk about the NBA, it's dominated by the black athlete anyway. Uh, so, so I, I guess I'm kind of worried that we'll get too greedy and we kind of turn off the brothers and sisters of other pigments. I don't, I don't know what you guys um, think. That. I'll, I'll just say something briefly, and, and I think Coach Ash can probably speak to the leadership part um, more eloquently than we can. But while sports is dominated by the black athlete, sports leadership is not. And um, I, I don't necessarily think that the conversation is, let's just roll up in there, you know, turn the table over like Jesus did in the temple and bring, you know, bring every black person to the table and let's just change it that way. Um, I think we need good and solid people from all walks, not just white people. Um, we need every ethnicity, every religion represented, because I feel like the more inclusive you are as an organization, whatever the organization is, the more successful you are, the more your reach is impactful, right? Because now you're not coming from a one-sided or even two-sided view. Um, I do believe we need more seats at the table. As a matter of fact, I became a prosecutor to have a seat at the table and to have power and authority to make cases go away and prosecute the cases that I can. Like, that's why I did it. Um, so I think it does become a slippery slope because then there is this idea, Kelvin, and I do agree with you where some people may not be satisfied right if, if if you come in and you put it half and half half white half black oh no it's not enough because for real change we need at least 60 percent right um i don't think that is what the conversation should be though we need like-minded individuals to really lead organizations um into the future but i'm very curious um to see what coach ash has to say about um, leadership just from a sports perspective. There, there are so many um, numbers that support uh, the fact that, you know, there's a, there's a, a huge inequity 
in sports in terms of leadership, head coaches, owners, athletic directors. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I, I see, especially from a coach's standpoint, is that you get a ton of African-American coaches that get opportunities. You know, like I think we get opportunities, right? Um, but you have to be ready, right, Dion? So, you know, you, you know you're, you're ready for your opportunity. You're not wasting your opportunity. You're taking advantage of it, right? Um, I, I believe that a lot of the times, and, and, and it's not all of them, but uh, there, there have been a lot of times where we've gotten certain opportunities and for whatever reason, whether or not we weren't ready, uh, whether or not, um, you know, you know, the black coach was just given a job to clean up the mess of like a previous coach. And then once that coach cleans up the mess, then they feel like, okay, we'll bring in a more cerebral coach. Um, you know, those are things that happen, but I, I do believe that it's on us to make sure that we understand what it takes to be the most successful in that, in that next phase. Right. So like I sit on a, a lot of zooms with, um, with other, uh, head coaches, um, uh, of, um, of our of our race right and i'm on a zoom with just all young guys that are that are my age and then i'm on a zoom where i'm like the youngest dude and it's like you know some of the elder statesmen in college basketball and you know i think the consistent message is you know we we got to support each other right so we gotta you know we we have to have the um you know, just the, the uh, camaraderie amongst each other where, you know, we, you call guys on the phone and you, 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 you pick their brain about certain situations and, and there's opportunities for mentorship amongst our, amongst our people, right? And then in terms of the, the, the even higher level of leadership, when you talk about the athletic directors and the university presidents, and the owners of the team, I think we have to aspire to have those positions. I think a lot of times, you know, we just limit ourselves to saying like, yo, man, I could be the player, right? And then, you know, it takes a guy like Michael Jordan to say like, yo, man, I'm, I'm gonna be a player and I'm gonna own the team, right? So now I think even more, um, or the reason why I respect LeBron James is that you know, you know, he, he he's not only a guy that's out there performing, but he's creating opportunities for his, you know, friends that he grew up with to be power players in the sports industry. So now this next generation, they can see like, yo, not only can I be a player, but yo, I can own the team. I could I could be an agent. You know, I could I could, you know, um have leverage in the game. Um but at the end of the day, it first starts with believing that you can that, that you can hold one of those positions, educating yourself on what it takes to be successful 
at that level. And then in all honesty, just understanding it's going to be twice as hard for us to get there. So you can't complain about it. You know, like complaining doesn't do anything. Like we know that we're going to, you know, have a tough road. Right. Um, I know a lot of times we have the mindset that like, yo, you know, we don't need any new friends. We don't, you know, like I'm, but like networking is, is one of the most important components to growth. Right. And I think you have to surround yourself around people that can help you grow, surround yourself around people that are going to inspire you as you're climbing up these ladders. Um, I think that's important because a lot of times, and this is just me personally throughout my journey, you know, as I started to elevate in my profession, there were certain people like, yo, Ash, you're changing. Well, yeah, I'm supposed to change my, like, I, like I, I'm still the same person, but like, my responsibilities, my responsibilities have changed. My goals have changed. I need to surround myself around people who align with those things, right? And it's not that you forget about anybody else, but you have to keep evolving. And I think a, a huge part of it is keeping a circle and a support system around you that can help you evolve that way. I think I think uh, Coach Ash makes a wonderful point. I think everyone's really made wonderful, wonderful points. I, I want to clarify something. I'm not suggesting that you change the NBA logo. Only reason I brought the NBA logo is to me it's crazy when you really think about it in, in, in hindsight that the man lost in the finals almost perennially to the Boston Celtics. <laughs> he gets one championship and somehow he's a logo, but the man that was beating him each year is just like, okay, nice story. Anyway, but I think that uh, it's important, right, because there, there are ways to deal with these things. And Coach Ass hits around the head. A lot of people, a lot of people who are privileged, white privileged individuals are not even aware of their own privilege. And so when you come at whatever privilege they have in an aggressive manner, the first thing they're going to assume is, you know, you're crazy. They're not going to listen to you. They're going to block you off. Right. Um, and so there is a component of that. And I, I did an interview with someone uh, who was involved in civil rights movement. And he said, I asked him, would he consider himself more Malcolm or Martin? He said, you know, I was more Martin than Malcolm because Martin's got invited to the cocktail parties. Martin's got invited to these other platforms. Uh, I think both are necessary. Um, but those who climb the corporate ladder who are sometimes deemed sellouts are the Martins, but we don't know how much Martins do for us behind those closed doors. Um, so that's important. And I think that, you know, when we talk about these things, um, it seems like a lot, it seems like a lot of the time um, we get in the game of respectability politics and we break it down to, we need to behave a certain way, but you know, I've experienced discrimination when I was just mind my business doing what I was supposed to do as a pastor. One time I was, um, I was in, I was in my neighborhood, like less than 50 feet from my house, going to do a pastoral visit for someone in the hospital. I was trying to find the address on my GPS. I was mind my business doing what a pastor's supposed to do. I was uh, finding an address to go visit a member in the hospital. Mind you, I'm just, I'm not even 50 feet from my house and a white man comes up 
Now, I know I've seen this guy in the neighborhood. I mean, we live, he's like a neighbor almost, maybe two houses down. He looks at my car. He looks at me. I'm in a suit, tie. Uh, I have a baby seat in the back. And he looks at me and says, can I help you? I'm like, no, nah, nah, I'm, I'm fine. And then he says, well, you know, you're sitting here. I said, well, I'm, I'm going looking for something. That's all. Showed him my phone. Uh, and he's like, um, he gets, he says, no, no, I need to help you. I said, no, no, I'm fine. I said, Columbia, you can't, you can't give me directions to where I need to go. So then I find the address. I pull in the GPS. I, I drive off. He takes a picture of my license plate. Now, this man I've seen, this man's kids have been in my house. His grandkids have been in my house. I said to myself, what about me seemed intimidating to the point where you thought that I was up to no good? What about me made it seem as if I was trying to case your joint, that I had something uh, ulterior motives? I'm in a suit and a tie in broad daylight. If I'm going to commit a crime, I'm going to do it now. But to me, it felt like oh, I felt like committing a crime after he took a picture. I felt like taking his phone and launching it. But the reality is, black people in this state, when I say state, I mean in this society, don't always have that freedom to get upset. So I had to deal with that microaggression as I'm on the way to do a pastoral visit while I was doing what the Lord told me to do. And so that's the one thing I hate about this whole situation. It, you can't win for trying. So it's tough, but, you know, um, I'm glad to have brothers on the line and a sister on the line who understand the struggle and know the work we have to do. Because this is almost that space where you can finally share those stories because no one else understands. I agree. And it's funny. And I kind of ask if you want to share a discriminating story. And mine's is funny. It's actually a quick two-part. First one is walking around the block as a teenager. Well, I said teenager. And we were just friends of our three or four of us looking for some girls around the block to go talk to. And the cop pulled us over in New York. I was born in New York. Pull us over, stop and frisk us, find nothing and drives away. And second one is when I worked in a bagel shop. Um, the Korean, my Korean boss was like, you know, he was like, those people, those people. And he's talking about the black um, customers. He said, those people. And I was like, and I looked at him, I said, what do you mean those people? He said, no, no, you're not black. You're not like those people. You're not black. I said, then I asked him, instead of getting angry at my boss, I asked him, and he was from South Korea. In South Korea, what images do you have of black people? Well, he was saying, oh, they shoot and kill and rob. But he said, you're not like them, Philip. And so that added pressure every day to try to defuse the stereotype that we do work hard. I was the hardest working person there at the bagel shop. I was a manager at 18. Um, and that's where I met my wife currently now at the bagel shop. But if anyone's cared to share. Um, I can honestly say I don't have any stories of outward discrimination towards me. And I do recognize, um, even though I I'm obviously a black woman. My position puts me in a space that's just a little different um, from, um, I guess, the, the public. And so I, I can't recall off the top of my head. I do remember, I have never been pulled over. And in Greenville, the place I was just talking about with the Confederate flag client, I was pulled over by police officers um, for allegedly speeding. You know, they walk up 
to the car. I rolled down my window. They saw my face and they immediately started apologizing. And so I have had the reverse happen to me because they knew who I was. Um, they knew I had no problem airing anybody out in court, cop or not. Um, and so it's just different how we are placed in categories. All of our experiences are not the same, right? And we would be lying if we said that they were. Um, and so I guess it just depends on who you are, you know, how they view you in society. And if you're a professional, it may be different. It may not be different. I do know that Black professional women, generally, our experiences are much different from our male counterparts and Black men in general. Coach, do you have any experience you'd like to share with the audience? <clears throat> um, so I took my family to Ocean City, New Jersey last, last summer. And coincidentally, one of our one of our donors, who who's been very supportive of me, he gave me a shore house for a week, and I'm and I'm talking about the shore house is immaculate. It's right on the water. Um, it's just beautiful. And uh, so he's he's a, he's a white gentleman, um, and um, you know he he wrote down a list of restaurants that we should go to. Right, so like, all right, dude gave us the shore house, gave us a, I pretty much a, a itinerary. Like, yo, these are the, these these are the spots. So you know, one morning uh, we went to a breakfast place that he that he recommended, and we went in, and you know, sat down, and legitimately, like, no one came service and you know it's like we're sitting there like you know i got my wife and my kids and we're so like time will i'm like dag like somebody gonna come service crazy and then i observed um like the waitress you know there was a there was a group white couple they came in you know, right after us. So, you know, like you, you know, you go in a restaurant, you're always on high alert of who you knew you came in there before, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, a white couple comes in and, you know, waitress goes and she goes to their table. So rather than um, put myself in a position where now I have to explain it to my children and all that, I just say, yo, you know what? I, I got a better idea. Let's go somewhere else, you know. And it wasn't it wasn't that big of a deal in terms of like having to explain to the kids, but it was like it's like wow, you know, like it. And this was last summer, so um, you know, it it was it was um, it was eye opening, and and it just reminds you that like yo, you know, in certain places. And this is, you know, you wouldn't even think like in like New Jersey, um, you know, that that it's still, you know, very much uh, a lot of, you know, 
racial tension and discrimination around, but it, it, that happened, that happened. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Yep. Wow. Cal, you have a story? Not so much a story, but um, for me, it's like a double whammy, man. And it's kind of tiring um, just because, you know, um, presence. Not only am I a black man, but I'm a black man with some size. I'm 6'5", you know. So it's one strike if you're black, you know. But then if you're black with some size, it's like, yo, we don't know what this guy's going to do. You know, you become a target after that. So, you know, um, you know, as an athlete, too, it's just it's just really – it's, 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 it's really a tough thought knowing that people love you when you're playing sports. Um, when I had, long as I had my jersey on, uh, long as I'm, you know, I'm in a certain area, it's fine. But those very same people, um, once you're in your regular street clothes, uh, you're walking down the block with them, and now you're a suspect. So that's always been something tough for me, you know, just growing up. Um, and, and, and Ash know the guy I'm talking about right now, a, brother, a guy named Rob Curse. Rob is a 6'9 six, six, white guy. Now, Rob played for Notre Dame and played, some, played a year or two for Golden State. Um, and it's crazy to me that me and Rob have to act differently. <laughs> so size is not really the problem when it comes to the white guy. But, but for me, being, being a bigger black guy, um, I'm always seeing – I'm always – seeing, uh, you know, slanted eyes or always people cautious around me trying to figure out, you know, you know, what I'm about, you know, opposed to somebody else like Rob that can just walk and just be himself and just be a tall guy, you know. So it's, 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 it's kind of tiring when, um, when I think about just, just being black in America and black and black with size in America even more. Yeah. The uh, reason why I want us to share our experience is that some people just maybe close to us, but doesn't know the experience or the things that we have gone through. They may think some agenda or so forth, but majority of people I know have pulled some type of discrimination occur, but that won't discourage us. We'll continue to move forward and continue to be great. And because we have, we have so much to contribute and we have built this country and we have so much more to give. If the opportunity is given to us, we could change, we could change the landscape of anything. All we want is to see at the table and the opportunity. But with that, on that note, I want to thank Coach Howard for coming through, hanging out with us, being a guest host on Our Lady and Some Dudes, and thank everyone for hanging out with us. We appreciate you, and we thank you. And that's the end of episodes of Our Lady and Some Dudes. Thank you for listening, and please continue to support us on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple. And look at our page on Instagram and on Facebook. Like, share, please. Thank you so much.